my nightmare is that I fuck up a whole interview and like the whole like I make somebody sit down with me for like an hour and a half and then the whole thing is no Just good. Shit. Yeah. yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good yeah. that you're neurotic. I'm the same way. I like to wor- like to worry about something going terribly wrong while it's happening. I like that. Really? Yeah. Aren't um, you a performer? Doesn't that affect you? That's why I don't perform much anymore. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that why you gave it up? Because no, you're so paranoid. No, because I just don't have time. And I just don't have any reason to. I mean, there's no... I can't rehearse with the band or anything. And I'm just not that into improvising anymore. So I'll get back into it if I move back to New York. You think you'll eventually move back to New York? If I do, I'll... Or like, if I move to a place where I, there's actually, like, a scene, I'll probably start playing again. You live in a... You live in a fucking... Yeah, I live in Palo Alto. What does that suck? No, no, it's fine. It's cool. It's just I don't have any real impetus to play drums or anything like that. I don't even have any, like, instruments in my place. I don't have any sticks or nothing. You don't miss that? No, not really. I dream about it occasionally, and that's enough. You dream? Yeah, Yeah, I dream. That's enough. Yeah. No, I don't miss it that much. I don't miss it that much. I'm not a multitasker. I can do one thing at a time. I'm the same way. (laughs) I have to pick a day that I either have an entire day where I'm just dedicated to like this interview project and i'm just editing audio Mm -hmm. or i'm composing that day exactly and then and then that's it yeah it's the same thing and it goes i'm the same way if i'm teaching i can't usually work that day like if i have to teach that day or prepare like a lecture i'm not going to compose or do anything do you think that's fucking up your life i feel like that's fucking up my life sometimes i i think my life is would be fucked up even if i were able to multitask i don't think it's yeah i mean i feel better when i'm i feel better when i'm working so I don't think multitasking, it's like I can dedicate a day to something. I don't think if I was doing more than one thing a day that I would be any less anxious or, you know, balanced. So I don't think it's that. I think it's other things that fuck up my life. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what else fucks up your life? Uh, it's not good for, it's not, inter- I don't think that's interview material. No, no, it totally is. <laughs> it totally is. No, seriously. Yeah. I don't know. That's okay. like neurosis, neurosis, upbringing, things like that. So, uh, but you're back with your family right now. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, yeah, we did Hanukkah yesterday. I put a yarmulke on for the first time in like 13 years. No way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are your parents Are your parents serious about it? Yeah, yeah. I come from like a pretty observant family. Yeah. And they're still they're still observant. They're still observant. What does that mean? Like every Friday night? No, 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 no. Not not anymore. But when I was growing up, when my grandparents were still around, yeah, yeah, we used to do. And that. your parents were like. Our parents are dead. We can finally loosen up a little bit. Yeah, they don't believe in God anyway. I don't think. But yeah, we're, they're observant. So like, yeah, I, I'm still when I'm home. I you know I put a yarmulke on sometimes when we do the when we do the service stuff. Yeah. Okay. Or like if we have dinner at my grandmother's house or something. I put do a yarmulke. Do you go? On. Do, you, do you go to temple? No, I haven't been to temple since I was like, I don't know actually. Definitely not since high school. My sister just had a kid. Right. Like two months ago. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's time to be Jews again. Mm-hmm. Like, so we actually did uh, I usually forget about Hanukkah I forget about it and then it's like day six mm-hmm. and I'm like oh fuck you know mm-hmm. and then I had to like make a phone call yeah. and then my you know my mom and my parents do the same thing they just don't care yeah. but all of a sudden there's this you know there's this baby that I guess has to be Jewish now and we do the whole we yeah. do the whole thing no it's a, it's um, a girl yeah it's a girl oh, okay so you don't have yeah. to do that yeah no no that'd be weird I wonder if I wonder if it was a boy, they would actually just have it. I mean, I know they would have it uh, circumcised no matter what, but I wonder if they would have actually gone for the like the moil and the ritual. I was it. just at one over the summer. How yeah. was that? Oh, I didn't God. watch it. I just got wasted. Yeah, it was fun. It was free beer and stuff like that. Was... What do you mean? You just get you just you just yeah, got you're wasted supposed while to... a baby cries. Well, no, the baby cried, but like that takes you know, it's just it's a quick thing. I mean, actual like 
process is, you know, they say a couple prayers and then it's over in like five minutes, man. So you all get together, you know, everybody gets there. There's a lot of food and drinks. Everybody drinks food. They take the baby out. The moil makes a speech. He cuts the thing. Baby cries. Everybody goes mazel tov. And then you just drink schnapps until you're totally wasted. Schnapps? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or schlivovitz, big schlivovitz, because they're all Hungarian and Czech. So it's all like plum brandy. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You get wasted and then you hobble home at six o'clock watch Thursday night football and then go to bed. It's not a bad, <laughs> it's not a bad experience. So, wow. So you're, I, I, I didn't know your family was that was still observant. I thought we were similar. No, nah, uh, I went uh, to yeshiva. Jews. I went to yeshiva, man. I went to yeshiva from first to eighth grade, like private conservative Jewish school, like half the day studying Talmud and Torah and half the day studying English and math. Do you know Hebrew? Uh, I my my speaking is pretty bad. I can understand pretty decently, and I can still read and write fluently, which is weird. That's oh. the thing that stuck. Holy shit! So you can so have, have you been to Israel? No, I went to Israel on uh, when I was fourteen or fifteen. Okay, so fourteen, yeah, you, fourteen. So yeah. you have been to Israel right 14. after what? Like right after you became a man? Yeah, yeah. Well, we went. I used to go to this Jewish summer camp, the Reformed Jewish summer camp, and then like they would um, they had this thing like. I think at the end of your freshman year of high school, you would all go to Israel for like six weeks. And so we went to Israel and that's where I first drank a lot. And I came home. I didn't sleep at all the whole time I was there. I was just partying. And then I came home. I had mono. So that like took up the rest of my summer. What did some, did some like Israeli girl give you mono? I don't know. It was probably one of the girls I went with because we went with like 30 people. It's like my whole camp year went all together and toured around Israel for like six weeks. And we just never slept, you know, and we were like drinking and stuff like that, kid, you know, like 14-year-old kids. And then I just got home, and I think it was just I didn't sleep. I probably slept like two hours a night for like six weeks. That's awful. Yeah, it was terrible. And then I came home, and I was like as sick as I've ever been. Um, but it was a lot of fun until then. <laughs> but I never went back to Israel after that. Yeah, I haven't been back since. I'm sure I'll be there someday. But what's your, so what's your, what's your relationship with uh, um, the whole thing now? I just I mean, you have, to have emo- you have to have emotions about it. About Israel, about being Jewish. No, about being Jewish. Oh yeah, it's like I'm so I'm I'm just like a total I'm totally Jewy man. It's like to the core, but I mean I don't believe in God or anything like that. Okay, so yeah, and I don't believe in the I'm but I'm like a cultural I'm like a cultural super Jew. I mean I just like you know, I speak Yiddish without meaning to you know like here it's okay, but in California it's like what, wait what did you say? What do you mean you you actually speak the yeah language yeah you'll Yiddish? you'll say like you know like he someone's a schnurrer or you'll be like you know it's typical things you can say in New York even if you're around oh no but, but okay so that's not speaking Yiddish no that's throwing in a throwing in words. Yiddish I speak I don't speak Yiddish but I can understand a pretty decent amount of Yiddish. Well, I mean, actually, I can understand Yiddish because yeah. it's German, it's which is which is same. yeah, which yeah. is amazing. Have you seen a serious man? That's the Minnesota thing, the one yeah. in Minnesota. I haven't, and my uncle told me to see you it. You have yeah. to see this movie. Yeah. It struck me at my core, like no other, you know, like no other movie about Judaism. Yeah, my uh, uncle told has. me about it. Anyway, the big, you know, the be- the beginning scene is this uh, folk tale and the whole thing. I mean, it's translated through subtitles. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing is in Yiddish, and it was insane because I could really understand it because of German. Mm-hmm. No, I, the only time I ever watched, like, the, any, the only time media ever really, like, crossed over into my, like, childhood subconscious or something was two times. When I first m- went to do my master's at Wesley and my uncle for my birthday, my uncle's a video editor, and for my birthday he gave me a book called uh, Foreskin's Lament by... 
I'm forgetting his name, but he, he, it was a really successful book. It was a bestseller, I think. And he gave me this book and it's about this, um, Lubavitch Jews or religious Jew, not like, like me, but like basically his childhood and growing up. And he's like a really crazy guy and his sort of freak out. And as he gets away from Judaism, but, but like, it was totally that his, his sort of obsessions and neuroses and family issues were like totally the same as my uncle's and, and mine. And I remember being on the train. It was when I first came back to New York after being at Wesleyan for like six months. So I was here for two weeks this time of year. And so I was riding the train up here to visit people and then going back to Queens. I read the whole book and I'd be on the train like intermittently. I would just start f just cracking up. And then other times I would start crying, <laughs> but I'd be on the train. It was like this whole thing took place on the A train or on the F train riding around between Manhattan and Queens. So I'd just be on the train like in shambles. And then all of a sudden like cracking up out loud. I must look like a totally crazy guy. So that was one time that media really like kind of mirrored it you have to see a serious man you have to see this serious man it's, and there's there's this bar mitzvah scene at the end actually you ha i don't want to spoil it yeah don't you. spoil it for me yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll actually watch yeah, that yeah but um i mean this isn't spoiling it because you you know it right away but it's like right before the bar mitzvah this kid the protagonist's son starts smoking pot and was right when i started yeah, me too. Smoking, smoking, <laughs> smoking pot. Yeah, me too. And I was one with the movie. Like, uh, yeah. uh, I've never been uh, with, with anything else. I, the Bar Mitzvah is a major thing. If, and for all the wrong reasons, I think, if you grow up in America, it's like the it's Bar Mitzvah a, it, is a major event, but not for the same reasons that I think are intended. I think it's for most Jews who grow up somewhere between religious observance well, and American, you know, sort of media reality there's a rift that happens at that point the tradition is you need to be educated and you need so show us you can read by getting up in front of everybody mm -hmm. and reading mm -hmm. you know and reading a book and reading the book you know mm -hmm. but for me since i was so reform you know what i do and actually what the kid does in the movie is he just listens to a record and he repeats it like a parrot. I never learned how to read Hebrew. Yeah. The only the only way I could actually get up there was and, and do that is to you know is to memorize the inflection and the words and the sound of it, mm -hmm. which was literally just taking you know a tape and just playing it over and over again. Mm -hmm. you know? They did that for me too, but that was during the because I grew up conservative. It was like a year of lessons, and you know I had to read the Haftorah, which was the book that had the actual you know vowels so not just the letters but the vowels underneath it and the little the what are called rashi i think which are the no not rashi no i forgot what they're called i think they might be called rashi i don't remember but the little things that say what the pitches are or the inflections that go with the words oh really it's literally like a pitch notation it's a pitch notation it literally is i mean it, do, it doesn't give you fundamental impartials but it gives you it's basically like like sort of baroque ornamentation so it tells you the ornamentation and how to move through things and i could do that i could read that so i could read the haftorah i could teach myself that although they gave you a tape when i would go to lessons and you would learn it but that wasn't a problem but learning the actual torah portion which is the big thing in the actual torah when they roll it out it's just the letters not even the vowels so you don't know whether it's an ah or e or a eh. it's just like the letters and no periods or commas and also no none of those uh pitch notations so that you basically even if you're you know even if you can read hebrew you still have to memorize the the actual inflections and all that stuff so i learned from tape for that too but it was a lot it was a ton i remember having to learn it, it was it was really crazy my parents put all this pressure on me you know you know my grandparents went to this pretty observant conservative synagogue on the island 
but the people who they came to America with after the Holocaust were all became really wealthy, like really wealthy. So it's yeah. it's really you know like hardcore, you know super ritzy, very well attended synagogue and so these people know each other and all their kids and everything so it's like this status stuff so you go on you know like you have to be you have to do a really good job you know you make no mistakes and all that stuff i remember stressing out about it but it was you know it's a weird experience and the party was a whole other experience but yeah it's, it's pretty far out what do you what do your parents think of you kind of falling off the judaism wagon they my don't parents care don't give a, yeah okay, they don't care yeah they don't care i mean they, they don't really care my, my parents i mean my mother doesn't wouldn't have cared anyway but and my dad doesn't care. It's a cultural thing, you know. It's like a, it's a heritage thing, I think, more than anything. And you know, they succeeded in making me Jewish and identify as Jewish all the way to the bone. But you know, the religious stuff—you can't be. I don't think you can be a really deep, deep critical thinker and be able to accept some of the, you know, some of the other sides. Of yeah, it. you know, every person on some level has to deal with that contradiction. Mm -hmm. You know, whether whether it's Judaism or not. You know, I'm only half. Well, I mean, technically, I'm not half. Technically, I'm full because my mom is Jewish. Mm -hmm. But during my bar mitzvah, I got up and I did the whole thing. And then my dad, actually, they made my dad get up and speak Hebrew. Oh, really? And it was it was fucking obscene. Oh, right. Because, in between the... To yeah, do the yeah, in between. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. like, he didn't... But you've never seen... I've never seen somebody not give a fuck so much up there when he goes up there. And he was, he was literally like... Baruch Atah Adoni, Good. Eloheinu, Melech. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And then after the whole thing, everybody's handing me the envelope filled with cash, and they shake my hands, and they're like, congratulations, you're a man now. Congratulations, you're a man now. And then my dad's just kind of staring at me outside, smoking a cigarette. And then after, uh, after everybody finishes... He comes in and I have this huge bag of money, like three grand in my hand, 13 years old. I have like three, four grand in my hand mm -hmm. and like maybe like 50 or 60 people were like, congratulations, you're a man, you're a man. And my dad comes up to me at the end of that and he's like, you're not a man. <laughs> you're like, don't think that about hey, yourself. That's, right. that's the that's the one thing that stuck with me for that whole debacle, you know, the whole bar mitzvah debacle is my, my dad's like, please don't buy into this and think that you're like a grown up now. Mm -hmm. You're 13. You're a child. You're still a child. You're Why a child. is it so? Yeah. yeah. It's insane. Well, thanks for coming in and doing this. Yeah. My yeah. pleasure. I had yeah. nothing, to, nothing to do. I was just hanging out in Queens, checking yeah. my internet, you know? Yeah. That's basically what I do in Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, these are, this is really two Jews talking right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm in Queens. <laughs> You know, I got you're nothing. in Queens, I'm in Jersey. I have nothing to do. This is my vacation. Are you glad to be back? Yeah, I'm back often now. I actually, I'm back here. I, I wouldn't say I'm back here as much as I was when I was doing my master's, but I'm back here for longer periods of time. It feels as though I'm here more often now. Don't you have lots of responsibilities at the no, uh, at Stanford? No, no, they stay out of your way pretty much. It's great. Do people like it there? It varies. Some people love it. I mean, some of my colleagues really like living out there. Why can't why why can't the intense culture of the school bleed into the actual world and create a and make a scene? Well, because the, the university itself is a city. It's so big that like yeah, the university. I mean, it's actually a city. It's Stanford is a city with a zip code. Like, it's, it's not in Palo Alto. It's, so what's the population of the city? Of the city itself, I have no idea. But the university, you've got, like, you know, 14,000 graduate students and five or 6,000 undergrads. So, yeah, it's a big place. And, yeah, the city itself is, yeah, it just it doesn't have that, it, that level of intensity. It's not a cultural mecca. 
do you get frustrated with the bubble of it? No, that's the best part of it because you have nothing better to do except work. So it's a great place. But don't you, you know, eventually you have to put yourself into a bigger context. Well, that's the thing about having New York. I mean, like I have a life outside of Stanford. I have a professional life outside of Stanford, like a professional music life outside of Stanford. And I have like a, you know, an actual life outside of Stanford. So when I'm there, I just, I just work. And then Friday nights I go out drinking with my couple of friends and I teach and that's it. I don't know if I like it when I'm there at the places, but I mean, they're great places to get work done, you know. Do you want a career in academia? I don't want one, but if somebody put a decent job on the table to me, I would. I don't, I don't know that I would turn it down. But I didn't go into. I didn't go to get a doctorate to be able to get a job, like in order to be able to get a teaching job. I think a lot of people do that. Most people do. That's the first thing they asked me when I got there, not when I applied, but when I first got there, I was sitting down with a couple of the faculty, and they were talking to me about my career goals and stuff like that or why I came to school and they're like so you want to go into academia and I was like well, no actually I don't if I don't have to or if I don't have the opportunity to that's great but I wouldn't turn down a really good academic position in a cool place but they made that assumption yeah yeah of course I always look at it as getting a PhD in new music is like getting a driver's license yeah well it's opportunities I mean I don't I didn't do it to get a job offhand but I went there for like you know to actually study and then to get the professional opportunities that that studying might lead to. But it wasn't, you know, the sort of like, well, if I get a degree from Stanford, I can go get a teaching position. Although you'll be able to. Well, no, not necessarily. There aren't very many. But I just don't think about it that much. I'm like, you know, I don't think, I'm not like a long-term thinker. I think like, what am I working on now? What am I working on next? And what am I working on after that? And it never really exceeds. Like, I only, I only know as far... I only make plans as far as like the last commission I have. And then after that, it's, you know, we'll see when we get there. No, you know, I, on some level I do that too. And it, and you know, and it's great because then it makes whatever you're working on about that and only that and not the next thing. Mm -hmm. And that kind of reduces the type of cynicism that people have when they're thinking about their career. If it's only about that thing that you're working on at that moment, then you're not worried about making sure that that thing has to do with getting the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good for that, but at some point, whether you want to or not, you do have to step back. And if you realize that you're not doing that type of long-term thinking, I mean, for me, it creates a real sense of panic about my life, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you get that? I mean, do you get that at all? Or like, what am I eventually going to do that's going to lead to something more stable than, um, okay, I'm in this bubble for the next four years. What happens after that? No, I honestly don't. I just, I mean, that four years is a really long time. I mean, the things pack in. I mean, I've only been composing for like, I don't know, three and a half, four years now. So if I look back. You're just like Natasha. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is a testament to you guys, but I yeah. thought you were, I thought you'd been doing it forever. No, no. I started right before I went to Wesleyan. And I started because I decided I wanted to go back to school and because, you know, I had the opportunity to compose and I was bored of playing drums. And I had ideas that, you know, I was wondering why I was bored playing drums. And that was because I couldn't express certain ideas i had so i started composing so you can you kind of have the same narrative as natasha just replacing drums with flute and stanford with columbia yeah you know yeah. And jew with non-jew yeah and jew know. with non-jew yeah. Yeah, yeah no it's the same thing it's yeah. the same thing yeah there's no i mean that's the thing that i didn't re that it's that's hilarious i didn't even really think about it but it's like you know when i applied to doctoral programs i'd been composing for about a year and a half i had my portfolio nothing in my portfolio had existed for more than that I sent 
for doctoral programs had had been in existence for more than six to nine months. That's crazy because your stuff is really sophisticated. I'd assume you'd been doing it because it usually takes a lot of experimenting and a lot of thinking of composing while being a composer to lead to what you actually do now. Did you jump right into this idea of, I mean, forgive me for sticking, putting your stuff in a box right now, but like complexity, uh, tablature, decoupling, Hmm. uh, notation. Was that the first thing you did? No, no. The first thing, the stuff I did when I applied to Wesleyan was more conceptual. So like I wrote these couple of more experimental process oriented pieces. And then when I got to Wesleyan, um, I don't know how it happened. It's the first real piece I ever wrote with like a beginning and end and with like actual notation all the way through was the, was at Wesleyan the first three or four months. And it didn't, it wasn't super complex, but it was like, yeah, it, it had, yeah, it had, it had a relative amount of complexity in it. I don't know. I mean, I just kind of studied. I got to Wesleyan. I had all this time. I started reading a lot of books, like just composer manifestos and compendiums and you know contemporary what music journals what, you know what 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 composer manifestos did you read uh well i got there and then i read all those blue books like the the ones that were published by darmstadt like you know all the klaus stefan meinhof and all that stuff like the oh, yeah, polyphony yeah, and complexity yeah. and all that stuff and i read that i read a bunch of the i read like the mcconey book on stockhouse and the harvey book on stockhouse and i read what other things did I read? I read a bunch of stuff on Spallinger, like different articles in contemporary music. Interview. I can see, I can see Spallinger. Yeah, stuff. Oh, I love. Yeah, Spallinger's my man. I'm, I'm a huge Spallinger guy. He's got a real following here in the states. Yeah, I know. And it's Wet Ink love his yeah, loves and, his stuff. I mean, good. You know, uh, yeah. uh, good for him. It wasn't that way three years ago. No, I know, and nobody in California. I mean, when I got to Stanford and I started talking about Spallinger, it was like, oh, that no way, man. This is not acceptable. And it wasn't always like that in New York either. I remember talking about him in New York for a long time when I was at Wesleyan and people being like, uh, uh. and I remember hanging out with Eric Lovels and Eric was like, we were talking about Lachenmann. He's like, well, you know, I think, I think, I think Spallinger is actually like really doing what Lachenmann is saying he's doing. And I was like, I agree with you. And yeah. it was good to know that I wasn't the only one that was in that boat. So I did, I read about Spallinger <laughs> yeah. and I got Wesleyan to, the great thing about Wesleyan is that, um, well, yeah, so I started writing music there and reading all this stuff. And the thing about Wesleyan is the library there is really great for, like, American experimental music in Stockhausen because of the faculty. But, like, a lot of the stuff I wanted I couldn't get. But because it's a small university and a very small graduate community, you have interlibrary loan. And, like, interlibrary loan there is, like, something you can just, like, walk into the into the Iliad, is what we call it, office, and, like, talk to Kate, who is the interlibrary loan person, and you create this like relationship. And so I would just like order, you know, we didn't take lessons. There was nobody on faculty there that was like going to talk to me about notation and about, you know, sort of modernist or constructivist music. So I just found it on my own and would just, you know, take out like as much music as I could every week and have it come to me through interlibrary loan and just like voraciously go through scores and listen to music and study and see how things were working. And that's really how I learned about like the nuts and bolts of composition was just by myself in a room with a stack of scores constantly coming in and constantly going back out.
when you were reading these quote manifestos, mm-hmm. how critical were you of them? When I was there, not much. At, at Wesleyan, I wasn't interested in the like in the underlying. I guess I was interested in, it was the beginning, so I was interested in surface. I was interested in material and form. So I wanted to get, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, you know, how Spallinger wrote, you know, uh, 128 uh, Erfolita Augenblinke. I didn't want to know why he wrote it, but I would read why he wrote it and invariably be like, okay, I'm not interested in that right now. Or the same thing with, like, reading Lachenmann or, or, you know, like, reading about Stockhausen. I wanted to see how Gruppen was made not why Gruppen was made. I didn't really get into the why or like actually get understanding or getting interested in the social aspect or critical aspect of composition until I went to Stanford. At Wesleyan, it was just like, I wanted to know about these people. I wanted to know how they actually, like how form worked. You know, I didn't have a, a teacher ever until I went to Stanford who talked to me about form or material. So I just wanted to like, you know, I took those two years and I was like, how do I create material and how do I create form? And I'll worry about like why create form or why create material in a certain way later on when I have time for it. So what is your why? The why? Yeah. I mean, you said you eventually, you eventually had to come to that conclusion. Uh, So what, I I don't know. I I can't say it's a conclusion, but like why for me today is well, one, because it, I mean, it's pragmatic. It's that people are asking me to write music, which is great. But mostly, like as far as the reasoning, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm really I haven't made I haven't made peace with it. But like fundamentally, I'm a critical composer and I'm interested in critical composition. But yet at the same time, there are certain things like about constructivist sort of almost modernist thinking in my music that would I don't think fit into that. Uh, the ability to actually create some sort of social critique yet. So I'm still on the level of like, you know, internal musical critique, but I would like in the long run, or at some point I'm gonna have to grapple with the fact that the things I like to talk about or the things that I like to read about in critical composition are things that I'm not quite ready to embrace in my own music yet. But hopefully at some point, I guess that's the, uh, the grander. Do you see that coming down the road for you though? I mean... At some point, it's going to manifest itself in a crisis. Oh, the crisis is ongoing. The crisis is ongoing. I mean, the thing is, I'm a pragmatist. So it's like when I first got to Stanford, you know, I had time to luxuriate on my first piece I wrote when I got there. Like I I arrived there with a commission and I wrote the piece. But since then, it's just like, you know, every four months I have a due date for commissions. You know, I'm building on each piece, but I haven't had that like long term, you know, six month, seven month, year long time to luxuriate on a piece where I can re, you know, sort of like reconfigure my own internal aesthetics. Right now I'm sort of like in the, in the, in the, what's it, like the Donatoni assembly line thing of like, you know, I mean, material, I haven't varied material. I mean, this is something that's actually been really good, but I haven't varied my material since I've gotten to Stanford. I've been using the same material and just like coming up with weird internal recontainer things, reformal you know, refer- reformation of certain formal issues, but I just haven't had the time to actually like take a step back and do those things of like reinventing it. So I'm in a constant crisis. I'm not even sure if I'm composing anymore. I feel like sometimes I'm not even composing. I'm just like, you're just doing it. I'm just, well, it's not even that I'm just doing it. I, I like, I'm just, you know, I'm making very small reconfigurations. It's as if I'm writing one very long piece rather than being able to like reconfigure things so that I can say I'm conform I'm composing in like that sort of romantic sense of inspired composing. But that's I mean that's a lot comes up with what you just said 
for me, what comes most to the foreground is, is that the lifestyle of having lots of commissions does not allow that type of self-reflection that you think you need. I don't know if I need it. I just feel guilty that I don't have it. I think you do. I think everybody needs it. Yeah. I think everybody at some point has to stop what they're doing. And I'm not saying for five years or so for at some point there needs to be a break. You need to step back and look at what you did. Mm. Look at the rest of the world, put it in context and see if you're happy with that. Mm -hmm. And if you're not happy with that, you can't change the world to better fit the context of your music. Mm-hmm. It has to go it has to go the other way around. And if you have a commission barreling down on you three times a year in your case, you mm-hmm. know, if it's every four months, then you don't have that luxury because you need to know you need to know it's gonna work. Mm-hmm. You know? Or you could just say, I'm gonna try something radically different from a commission, but then you risk of it like really failing yeah. and also hurting your career. Yeah. Why don't you do that? Why don't you just uh, say, you know, I know I only have four months, but I need to try something completely different. Let's I did write some whole notes. I did one. Know? I did one. I did one like a low last year, like a lower pressure sort of Stanford thing, which was like a Stanford concert. So not really a commission, but like a school thing where I tried something. Uh, and I learned it, it failed in my opinion. Everything fails, but I mean, it failed on a larger scale. Uh, so there wasn't really that much to build on in that one. But uh, but I will. I mean, I will. I have this commission. I have two things I'm working on now, and one of them is this piano piece that was commissioned for this larger, like, Cage 100th anniversary oh, thing. Man, it's Cage everywhere. Yeah, Cage everywhere. And so I have this commission now that's actually, like, due in a couple of weeks while I'm working. On, I've been working on this other piece. And, uh, yeah, so, like, for this one, I'm actually doing something that totally... And it's not not by force. It's just the idea that came to mind to like actually fulfill the project, and what the project's supposed to be about was something that really has nothing to do fundamentally with what people would expect. I think those situations are good opportunities for you not to be yourself. If 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 there's a strong underlying theme, you just have to make it fit into that theme, and you're not so obsessed about making sure people know that it's you and yeah. it has your identity. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is definitely that. So what's so different about this piece? Oh, well, it's got, yeah, it's, I'm using electronics, which I never do, or I've only done once. And, you know, it's, a, it's basically not a prose score, but very minimal notation. And I'm using dictaphones and, you know, things that I would never, yeah, things that just never, it, it's using the same sort of algorithmic structures that I use, but it's just using material and, and sort of larger scale you know, the way that it'll actually end up sounding is totally not something that has any identifiable, like, trademarks of what I do normally over, you know, the short little career that I have. What made you go towards, like, the box I put it in before in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, like the complexity decoupling mm-hmm. um, extended extended well, technique? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. It depends. Like, uh, it's hard to say because I don't know. You know, I I always feel like I have a real, well, obviously, I mean, I know my music really well because I'm the one who wrote it and it's a short period of time. So I can track the linear progression literally from piece to piece, especially when you don't have a huge catalog. I mean, I don't. So um, I don't know. I mean, I started out really interested in, in noise and in noise versus pitch. And I wasn't doing any sort of really deep like hardcore notation or I wasn't using multiple staves and stuff like that. But you like were that. playing with Pomplamoose and that's, you right. know, and, and they're all about that. Exactly. So that was, that was the first thing. And then I, I don't know that I've written much decoupled music. There's like one piece 
I think the third piece I ever wrote, which was a string duo that was performed a lot, that piece used a lot of like noise. And also I was doing some performative stuff, like, you know, composing certain gestures, literally gestures, not musical gestures, but like allowing like the physical, you know, almost composing choreographically and allowing the sound to come out from that. And so it needed to have a certain amount of decoupling in order to, to, to see those things. But I wasn't ever really interested in the idea of decoupling, meaning like you're going to have two parameters, three, four, five, a hundred parameters that sort of work against each other in some sort of way and then create an oral reality that is malleable in a longer scale. In other words, like, you know, a very idealistic combination of like a constructivist and conceptualist, you know, ideals coming together so it's both highly modernist and highly experimental you know the ideal for an american composer in academia i think it's very nice but i don't i never really did that i mean when i use multiple staves like i do now especially in string music and i notate the left hand and i notate the right hand that's what i mean by decoupling yeah yeah when i think decoupling i think of actually like creating some internal like frictive element that creates an instability in the writing so that so that the actual oral reality that comes out may or may not be traceable but that's what i associate with your music that there is a there is kind of this impossible friction there yeah there's an impossible friction but the thing is that it's not it's kind of dorky i guess to talk about but like on the i'm not I'm not asking, so like a typical thing you would see, like, you know, if you read in the literature, if you were to track like Aaron's music or, or Hubler's music and things like that, some of Barrett's earlier stuff would be, you know, having a bow pattern that goes against a fingering pattern. And, you know, the actual reality of what's going to happen in there is not going to be what you see on the page and invariably may not actually be consistent from performance to performance. And that's that's the interest there. That's That's the interest for the composers that he's trying to get this you know, trying to get this sort of gesture or this intensity to come out rather than saying, I want, you know, this pitch, this, this element to come out orally at this point. For me, it's like, it's not about that. Even I'm using multiple staves. Most of the time, if I'm having something going on, the bow is moving at the same time as the left hand. The bow stave is there not to cause some sort of element of, you know, instability between that and the fingering stave but it's literally the only way that i can get the described gesture in the hand to move it's not because i want it to be creating some sort of articulation that isn't going to be in in succession with the same left hand architecture. it's literally it's, it's like this is the only way i can do it this is the only way i can do it yeah there's and really I know no it's way com- I, can do it. I know it's complicated but it's possible for it to be consistent. I, I think so. I mean, I've had only I've had, I've had very few pieces played by different performers. In other words, like different violinists playing the same violin part. Um, so I can't say actually a hundred percent because there are elements of of instability in there, but they're not in the in sort of the multiple stave layout of you know what's perceived as decoupling. That's not the instable element. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, it's like you can only throw so much information you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a contradiction of techniques mm. like something in aaron cassidy's music um, yeah but aaron's doing um, it purpose i mean aaron, yeah, aaron's doing I know, it purposely yeah, i mean he's he, he I, I know he's doing that purposely but it it also has to do with excessive information mm-hmm. and even though technically that excessive information might not be inherently contradicting itself mm-hmm the performer is still a person who can only take in so much information and has to make a choice mm-hmm. about what information to take in. 
So let's just let's just go with the hypothetical here. You know, there's one measure. It says that you have to do ten things. Mm-hmm. You know, within a very short period of time, they're going to be only be able to choose at most. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making this up. Like three or four. Mm-hmm. You know, and because of that, when you go from player to player, they're going to choose a different three or four each time, depending mm-hmm. on who they are. And I think your music does have that. It might not be inherently contradictory, but there's so much information that a choice has to be made. And um, depending on who's playing it, that choice is going to be different mm-hmm. each time. Yeah, I it think creates right. something that's unstable. Yeah, I think you're right. But the, uh, there, there goes back to performance practice ideals where, you know, like, I mean, you can say this, this is nothing new. You can say this about about Brian's music and other people that you're going to have to attend to certain things. And, you know, the parametric difficulties of, of these various things are going to create having to make choices of or, or giving sound to the impossible in certain cases, like a, you know, triple pianissimo high, you know, way high B on flute. And then, you know, a triple fortissimo low B flat. I mean, but these are, these are things that he's interested in. And I understand that in Aaron's music, you know, the, the tuplet use and the things I was talking about before where you're having, you know, different parameters moving and, and creating that sort of shift. It's also obvious. Ryth- rhythmically mind boggling. Yeah. And yeah. well, actually, I mean, physically in certain cases, I mean, Aaron's music, absolutely, absolutely impossible. And in certain cases in Brian's music, impossible, I think, although I, I mean, he wouldn't agree, but to me, that's, that that's a very, I, I think that's a, that's like a, you know, a, a field of play that, has a lot of utility and it's very interesting but fundamentally that's that's what they're interested in for me there's a lot going on but if you track what's going on actually physically on the instrument there's not a lot of movement so the things that i'm asking for are not like you know again because i've been writing a lot of string music it's the first thing i think about but you know, like the left hand, you know, the left hand has all these multiple parameters because I'm asking people to create this weird dialogue on the strings, you know, between held double stops and then creating these tapping around the double stops. But the movement in the double stops and the hand positions are all really close to each other. And they're really typical performance practice that you would get out of, you know, any basic book on double stops. So it's there's a lot of information, but I'm equally as interested in the simplicity of the information, the repetitiveness of that simple information, and then also the fact that I'm giving a lot of a lot of excess, excessive detail of what I want, but I'm also leaving out huge swaths of detail on the page, so that it's it's very important to me that if you're going to have a page of black notes, that the priorities are actually given in the notation rather than having to have them pick. So, like in my music, there's no dynamics. In my music, there's there's no rhythm in a literal sense. In other words, there are no nested tuplets. There are no triplets. There are no rests. It's it, it's a weird it's a weird spatial thing that you have going on. Right. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, well, okay, as a performer, and I've been really lucky to work with one performers who are excited about doing things that are a little different, and two performers who happen to be really good. Um, I think that if I if it's clear, it's like okay, there's a lot of information on the left hand. There's a lot of information in the bow. There's a lot of information about bow pressure and using the bow as a mute or whatever. There's no time outside of sort of a bracketed accelerando. You know, okay. There's also no real sort of dynamic. Okay, well, I have a lot to work with. So it's obvious that he really wants me to. You know, this bow pressure thing is going to be really important because that's actually going to be what's used to create the dynamics it's yeah. also going to be what's used to create the amount of noise to 
the signal to noise ratio of what's going to be sounding. Oh, I see. So it's important to me to sift out those ideas of like, I'm going to give you a lot of, of material and I'm interested in you picking what you feel is most important. I actually, the stuff you see on the page, I don't expect, or I don't know if I'm getting a full realization of it. And I know that it's going to be in flux because of the things I choose not to actually give a hundred percent. Like the rhythm will be different each time, either vastly different or a little bit different, but I have control over the general temporal landscape and also the verticalities. So after those verticalities, I can accept like sort of a, you know, frangible kind of back and forth. So I give, I give a lot, but I give only a lot of one, one or two or three specific things. And the things that aren't there, I think, are the things that people can say, okay, that's not a priority. These things are definitely a priority. And that's what I have to attend to. But you'll really never know what, you know, I mean, you have an accept, acceptable margin of difference in your head. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you'll really never know if you're actually meeting that acceptable margin of difference if uh, you don't give it to lots of players to play. Yes, I'm just learning that now. And what happens if other people get, you know, your music and all they have is that information and you have nothing to do with it at that point? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a document to them. Mm. What happens if they get that and it's completely different? Do you have to rethink your your yeah. universe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, would you be open to saying, I got to make this more simple? Absolutely. I got to make this more traditional. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not married to the idea of having three staves or having a black page. I'm also not married to not using, you know, four, four instead of, you know, nine and two thirds. I mean, I, I don't, none of those things, I'm not interested in, in creating some sort of like, you know, statement on how the music looks on the page. It's just been, well, I like it to look neat. I like it to look good. But if it, if that means having, you know, a whole note and some squiggles after that, I'm okay with that too. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't really, it doesn't bother me to reinvent things. I don't go back and fix pieces unless there are mistakes in it. Like none of the pieces I have now. So if I, you know, if a string quartet played by X quartet and then Y quartet sound tremendously different, which hasn't happened yet, um, I wouldn't go back and fix it so that I thought, I could get the same. I would just write a new string quartet. In other words, like I don't go back and fix. Oh, you're that guy. I don't do that. I don't. Yeah. I mean, if there are mistakes in it, if there are physical mistakes in it, I correct them. Obviously. Yeah. But other than that, I don't go back. I don't, I don't like rework. Yeah. You know, you're, you're more of the, you know, live and move on. You don't okay. like to dwell on something that you did three years ago because it's somehow imperfect. Yeah. In your no head. Problem. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Okay. Yeah. Those, I'm willing to wear those warts. I mean, I put those on my website. I just put up. Now, there are pieces there from the first piece that I wrote to the last piece that I wrote. Good for you. I have a tendency to dwell. You on know, the old ones. If it's still salvageable mm -hmm. in my head, like if I'm not like, oh, that's a worthless piece of crap I did, mm -hmm. then obviously I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to rebuild it. But if there's something in it that I think is still, you know, uh, noteworthy and all I have to do is work on it for, you know, three weeks mm -hmm. and then it will be a piece that I think is good mm -hmm. then i'll do that i won't apply it to the next piece i mean i will apply it to the next piece but i will take the energy to go back and rewrite something right. to um, uh, make it good yeah but because of that i have like five versions of uh i have five versions of a trio i did and it started out with shapes on a page mm -hmm. and now it's like really concrete everything right yeah yeah and i don't do that i do that i mean i build on each piece i know I, I think you're uh good for you for not doing that because it's healthier i think no, I mean, I don't it's a know. Better I don't way know. to live life. 
I just like, I, you know, if it's done, it's done. And I'd rather, I'm not that person anymore. But then again, the pieces between pieces are very similar. I mean, I, I build on the next one. And the next one invariably isn't going to be terribly different than the one before, which is back to that idea of like, am I really composing or am I just transcribing at this point? Um, but but yeah, I'm not married to this sort of stuff. And I'm not married to being part of any, like I, I have a real, not groups meaning like, you know, being in Pomblemousse, but I have a real, you know, like I, I, I don't like being, identified i hate groupthink i hate as soon as you tell me i'm something i'm going to try my hardest to be something different that sort of like punk attitude of like you know don't tell me what i am sort of thing so i don't know but at this point i'm learning now since being at stanford i mean stanford's been the first time where i've had more you know i haven't been writing for pomplamoose that much so i've been writing for people who i don't know and that was a big thing like I remember going to, to the the first piece I ever had played not by Pomplamoose was the summer before I started at Stanford at the Wellesley Conference. I wrote this like a typical piece that I would write at that time. I was petrified because I, I really didn't know at that point if the only reason my music worked was because I had these close friends who were great musicians who understood what I was doing. I mean, it was I was like petrified. Well, they know what you want. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, the sound world that you're creating is really kind of a version of what was does anyway right yeah so it was like totally freaky but it worked out it happened to be a good experience for me and so now working with all these different ensembles and things like that it's made me more not confident but obviously since i've kept going in that direction as far as giving you know not more information but sp more specific in information in the score i found it to be really great the question is now having like a string quartet played by this string quartet and played by another string quartet, the question will be not on a large scale level, not on a formal level, the formal level. I'm, I'm, I understand, I don't understand, but I know that that will, I hope. And I think that that has some resonance between ensembles, but is like the micro detail that I'm obviously so obsessed with, like the sort of relation to the whole, is that actually something that replicates itself from performance to performance to an, like a high enough degree that it really calls for the level of like, hyper excessive microstructural like that that fingering has to be here while you're fingering this and moving the bow in this slight way or is that just some sort of like internal obsessive thing that's more fetishized than anything you just said that you think all your scores have to look or you want them to look good do you think that's a fetish in some way i mean you are you are a sound person at the end of the day mm -hmm. do you think that's a fetish and is that something that it's okay to embrace or is that something that uh is is at at the end of the day you really risk of it becoming more about that than you know about the sound being produced yeah the the latter is a, is totally valid and you know might be true to varying degrees but to me it's like i just want to give the clearest easiest thing to read to the performer and so like i don't like using computers one for notation because honestly it would make it more difficult having to like restructure things for what in illustrator do, for what yeah. you do yeah i mean it would probably take you years of learning the nooks and crannies of a notation program for you to be able to do what you do yeah i mean it's possible but you would have to really kind of you'd have to figure out how to cheat and fool the program yeah uh, in a way i mean i have i have to do that and it's really uh, frustrating because i'm constantly going against what the thing naturally does yeah I, I just like doing it by i mean i've gotten i've been i've only done it by hand and from doing everything by hand for a long period of time and like getting certain skills of like drafting not professionally but like just from doing it a lot and finding the right tools to help me be 
more productive and for it to be neater. It's kind of like, yeah, why give somebody, even if I wrote, like, I don't make drafts, you know, like I, you know, the, the thing that you see final is there's no draft before that. I don't start from like a, I don't make like a scratch score and then copy it. I do all the, the math and sort of like, you know, ch crunching the numbers that are going to create the actual n stuff that's going to be on the page, the pitch material, the rhythmic, whatever. And I just go straight to the page once that's done. It's not straight from your head to the page. There is there you you, you do write down equations and, right. and you know logistical stuff. Logi oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's totally front loaded. That's totally front loaded. But once that's done, it's literally straight to the score. Like there's no prep score. So for me, it's like the thing is, even if I were to make a prep score, and it were readable, like you know, in the sense that a Feldman score, handwritten Feldman score is readable, or a no no score is readable. To me, it's kind of like. Yeah, it's readable, but why not make it like really clean? You know, just it's the the performer is going to work really hard on it. So why not make me? Why I should work hard on it? Like make it neat. You know, to to the point where where I make it look good in like an artistic sense. That's just because I I enjoy the process of doing it. But the neat thing, I think, is you know it's important to me that I'm putting in the effort and making it as clear as possible as I can when I give it to the performer. Yeah. It also depends on the question that you're asking yourself though. If you're asking yourself and you truly believe I'm making this neat for the performer and not because I'm obsessing with this document that I made. Mm. And then like at the end of the day, it, it's like, I almost, sometimes I feel like a piece is done when I, you know, when I, when the document's done, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. not after the performance mm -hmm. and, and that's a really bad thing. Mm -hmm. And like, all of a sudden I'm like looking at the score obsessively and then I'm proud of the thing I did, mm -hmm. but really I shouldn't be proud of the thing, you know, I did until it exists in, you know, sound pressures entering people's, you know, ears, ears you know, right. I don't know. I can totally identify with both sides of that, like binary. So to me, there's nothing wrong with being proud of a score. And there's nothing wrong also with saying a score is just a plastic object that has no like, you know, resonance in, in, in like a historical sense until it's actually turned into sound waves. I agree with both, but you know, I just enjoy at the end of the day, it's about, you know, you have to enjoy it. And obviously you enjoy making the, the actual process of putting it in a, in some sort of visual realm that, that you are happy to look at and you feel comfortable and proud of. I, yeah, I don't I don't see them as that far fundamentally aesthetically they have some sort of difference, but at the end of the day it's like, yeah, you should feel good about it. You should feel good about what you're giving to the performer just like you should feel good or not feel good about what's being heard. I mean, well, I think you should feel you should feel good about it in the sense that what you're giving them is the clearest possible way to get the sound result you want, whether it exactly. be something that's varied or not varied from performance to performance. Exactly. And um there's a big difference between that and, you know, making a piece of visual art. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but there's the thing that alvin alvin lucier who was my my advisor good friend at wesleyan when i was there he always said to me that you know he would see all people making whether they were writing prose scores or writing symphonies you know doing things in in finale or sibelius or in word or whatever and he would always say why don't you just do it by hand because if you do it by hand you can then sell it later on in other words, like that, he was very akin, you know, keen on the idea, not that he cared about the money, but the idea that when you create that object, regardless of your aesthetics, that that object creates some sort of like patina, like, like Benjamin-esque patina that then you can transfer. I mean, it's undeniable that that, that whether you think it's a fetish or not, that this piece of material has some sort of 
value to it in a larger sense i mean you know that's how the visual art world makes the you know makes the big money Mm -hmm. it's sellable and permanent Mm -hmm. you know but why not why not apply that to a recording instead of a score you could and most people would say i mean i've had conversations with colleagues some of whom are you know who are very into calligraphy and stuff like that that you know the best document that they give to people they they no longer see the score as the document to give to people in other words new performers that will give them the right amount of information it's some prior recording so it's like here's my score I, you want to play my quartet whatever here's my score but here's a really great recording of it and this will actually tell you as much about how this piece is realized as this like hyper um you know fussy notation yeah they're they're one hand that washes the other i mean it's super complex when you take the object and the sound out of it and you're just dealing with aesthetics these things are very weighty but in, invariably and the, and that sort of aesthetic weightiness is stuff I love to talk about and, and to think about but when it comes to the actual act there's a pragmatism that takes over and instead of poo-pooing the pragmatism we're creating some sort of like cut that I'm either interested in the object I'm interested in the sound it's just kind of like invariably both have a level of of presence and no matter what my aesthetics tell me where to align myself they have a level of presence for you, but the dude coming into the room who paid, you know, I mean, I mean, the dude who bought the ticket or just showed up sitting down listening, mm-hmm. it's all about that pragmatism, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. uh, um, and, but cage, you know, when you go to all the, we know it's like the cage year. So like when we all go to these cage concerts, I went to one at Stanford and, um, what piece were they playing? I don't remember which piano piece it was, but they were scrolling the score on like a projector as she played it, which I you can say whether, how you feel about it, positive or negative, which a lot of us did after the concert. I've gone to concerts of Brian's music where they've done the same thing. Now, I I don't want to defend or, or sort of beat it down as something that's wrong, but you do, people look at the scores. They do. They do look at the scores. And, and especially in New York, I mean, after a lot of performances I've been involved in, without having an understanding that the scores look whatever way they do, people who are even non-musicians, whether it's my score or Natasha's score or some other dude's score, they want to see what's going on because it's obviously part of the process. It's obviously part of the process, and it's really interesting because I think people don't realize what a change in priority has taken place once you make part of the experience looking at the document. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's a big, big change Mm -hmm. to just sitting down and listening to something mm-hmm. you're preoccupied with. Well, it's not, I mean, at that point, if, if you're saying it's part of the experience, you're not even, it's not even a preoccupation, mm-hmm. you know, but your focus is divided. And now you're kind of realizing the difference between the reality. You're making the listeners have to also confront the uh, margin of error that you're talking about. Right. The difference between what they're hearing what? or the similarity between what they're hearing uh, between what they're seeing at that moment. Mm. That's a big, big change from just sitting down. But that also, but it depends what we're talking about because then that's a question of like, in, and that's a larger question of like in modern music, is it acceptable for things to be inscrutable or do we want clarity? So in other words, like the the difference between the score and the reality and the difference between just sitting and listening to like a Beethoven symphony you know, I think like a Beethoven symphony, you know, somebody sitting down who has listened to classical music or grew up in Germany or, you know, whatever, you have the mnemonic triggers to be able to pick up on what's going on on a larger scale. Today, modernist thinking 
you know, you, you accept that each piece has can have this uh, like sort of encircled self-referential ism that exists in this one case. And unless you really understand what's going on within that one case, your ability to, to sort of connect that to what else is on an evening of music can be really quite difficult. So, you know, maybe the yearning in people wanting to see the score is to create some sort of understanding, not of truth, but that there is something that there is like, there is maybe to get their head more into the idea that there is this wrapper containing this thought process, even though it might be inscrutable. But then the score at that point is supplementing the sound. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying basically um, because of the concert experience that has, you know, evolved over, I don't know, you know, let's throw out a number, you know, 300 years, 400 years, the European concert experience, you have to supplement that experience with a document. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, yeah, uh, no, I, no, that's, that's, and, um, what does that say about the music? Well, it says the music a lot of times is inscrutable and that we as composers should find a way to find a way towards clarity. I mean, that's a really, you know, I, I don't think that that's something people could agree with, but I mean, I certainly, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with writing an understandable piece of music, whatever that means. In other words, like it means that it means that it appeals to people's cognition in a way. Where, yeah, whatever that know, means. There, there's something for them to grab onto and decode and understand and follow. Absolutely, and I, I don't think that that's something that, you know, in my experience, I don't think that that's been something that, amongst a lot of my colleagues, has been. I'm not saying that they don't embrace it, but that's seen as something that maybe isn't hip. You're expected for your music to be veiled and not to be understood on the first or second listening, and that that's a good thing. And I think that that's totally fine. But for me personally, the more I do it, the more I'm interested that you should be able to hear people. Yeah, just that it should be heard. And that doesn't, you know, I'm not, obviously I think that that doesn't mean I feel I have to give them less of what I'm interested in or, you know, sort of cut out any sort of complex thinking. But I think that you can create some sort of, you know, you create whatever, some sort of wrapper or container that allows people on a certain level to see the way that something can unfold that isn't totally necessitating them having to make that sort of connection that we're postulating they're making by seeing the score and knowing that there might be some sort of truth or perceived truth behind this very odd or very confusing or overwhelming oral experience. I mean, I'm interested now, and it's not, you know, over the last year and a half or whatever. Yeah, how can how can we make this you know, through some sort of like didactic thinking, how can we make this audible? And I think that's the thing that I like about Schwalinger or the pieces I really think that are great by Schwalinger is that the materials themselves, it's not like a surface thing. It's not about these surface materials of like, you know, extended techniques or major chords or, you know, sort of weird harmonic thinking. It's just about, you know, the material is there to create, to serve some sort of larger formal purpose that I think in the really good pieces you can perceive what you're supposed to attend to is like, you know, the material and what you're supposed to attend to is like this other material that's informing or polemicizing, you know, internally what's going on. So that like sort of critique allows you to see through that you leave the experience saying, okay, I think I got something out of that aside from it being like, he thought high, he thought the greatest thought he could think, and that's good enough. It's like there's a clarity to it that I think is actually really interesting. So you do have a why. That's your why. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were like, I don't know, I need time to think and come up with a why, and I have a commission every four months. But what you just described, which sounds pretty much like a preference that you have now, mm-hmm. 
that's what I'm talking about when I'm yeah. talking about the why. Uh, I'm not there. I don't know if I'm there. See, that's the thing. I w- if I'm you, there, you don't know if you're technically there. No, but I that's know. okay to work through that to work through, through composing. But you know, eventually you want that. Yeah. You just don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. I just yeah. don't want to write surface. I, I, I want there. I, I don't want to be obsessed with material and surface. I want to, be, I want the music to retain a certain level of austerity as far as the materials maybe, or like still being able to keep the sort of thinking the detailed thinking that I do, but at the same time, not be this sort of monolithic thing that you can't permeate. I want it to be, no, I want the formal structure to be clear. I want people to hear the iterations. I want them to hear the variations, those sorts of things. I think that's really important because I, I think that that's something that's, you know, yeah, I, I like that. I couldn't agree with you more. And certainly our styles are, you know, vastly, vastly different, but I'm also still trying to figure out how to, how to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I judge something, mm-hmm. you know, that criteria is how I judge it. That's great. Yeah. And because of that, I can also say if something fails or not. Yeah, I have hope. I have hope that the, I mean, I always say this in comp seminars or when I'm talking to students where I really think, I, this, I don't know if I really believe it. It's sort of like the thing of like, well, I don't believe in God, but maybe deep down inside because I was bought up to believe in God that somehow, you know, I, I don't believe in God as an abstract thing, but I believe in God as something that, I, that exists in my daily life because I've been told that God exists. And so I'm constantly thinking like, oh, I shouldn't do that because God will get angry at me, that sort of thing. It's the same thing of, you know, that sort of faith in, I really believe that the materials in a really great piece of work, like a really the architecture is so strong and the lattice is just, you know, perfect. You've built this beautiful structure that I think that you could replace the materials in the piece. So you can take like, you know, it's it's using these sorts of, of surface materials, noise, spectral counter, whatever, counterpoint, it doesn't matter. That if you keep the temporal element the same and the space and silence taken up by these structures and replace them with a completely different structure like the sound of a of a pig or you know you know tonal harmony that it would still have the same amount of reverberation i hope that that's true and i i I think fundamentally it's that a really great piece of work sort of like larger formal thinking would allow for that to work the material no longer becomes the important thing the material could be almost switched out for an entirely different material that keeps the same level of sort of internal differentiation. But you're really separating those two. I mean, that sure shit doesn't work for a Bach fugue. No, you know? it doesn't, but yeah. maybe it could. I, I don't know that it couldn't. I don't know that it couldn't. I mean, I'd, I would like to think that it could. I've never done any sort of research into this, but it's sort of like a larger belief that's like the mantra of but the material is built and made in a way and i'm talking about that micro material that kind of surface material that you're talking about that it's meant to fit into that structure mm-hmm. into that larger structure and you can't just substitute that with you know mm-hmm. everything else you know but what if it retains what if there are a way to using and some other material we're not going to name what it is that has the same parameters of variability and you retain that variability within those parameters using another material, I wonder if that lattice, that like beautiful formation and thinking of, of counterpoint could actually create a beautiful piece of work and is not relying on actually the sound of an instrument or the sound of a piano or... I, it, 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 isn't so much, it isn't so much even about that. It's about the idea that 
I feel a lot of times the conversation that I have. But you're you're basically, I mean, you're describing a lot of Feldman box pieces, you know, or a lot of Eliotorp pieces. Yeah. Where it just, where it, you know, it's like play a high note, play a low note, and sometimes mm. instrumentation is open, sometimes. Yeah, you know. but that's, that's, tem- all right, so yes, you're, you're right. But I think that if you if you can mirror all right let's 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 back up if you instead of it being just about temporal structure in a longer sense like in a you know from a point A to point B being the ending is retained and the materials the durations of those materials are are kept the same what about we said also the amount of of intricacy between um, the materials remains constant so if it's you know and if we're saying like a Bach fugue. You know, there are a certain amount of parameters, there are a certain amount of notes, and there are a certain amount of like tensions between those notes and other notes. If we can find other materials that have the same amount of variability and can create perceived tensions between them, that we can create ideally a piece using entirely different materials but maintaining the same structure, that would be ideally, you know, satisfactory pieces of music. I, it's just like, a, it's like sort of a, a way of thinking that I feel as though what I talk about a lot of times with my colleagues and in seminars and things about that is up. It's this obsession with materials, with sounds, with techniques and things like that. But what about the container? I wish that we were talking more about the, I feel like much more interested in talking about the container that we put around these things. And so it's you my got, way you, of You don't talk those. about large forms in the seminar? Not it's in a, the seminar know, it, that it, much, it, no. it, it, It's always about check out this scratch tone. And it, then that's it? That's where it stops? It's not so much where it stops, but I just feel as though that's what people are... I feel that's a lot of times what ends up being the thing that's talked about rather than, you know, the the way that it's contained. And I think that that's partially because of this idea of, of like, the inscrutable thing of, like, you know, the open question mark. You know, if it wasn't an open question mark constantly, and if you were forced to dig down and find some sort of formal thinking behind it, and having to obsess about that container, that the level of discourse would be not more interesting, but would be more open. In other words, like, I just, I feel like you can only bend the instrument so much. Certainly, uh, certainly it would make these surface things that people are obsessing with a lot more fallible. Well, they are fallible. Everything is fallible. Yeah. It's a personal, this is of course in in no way, I'm speaking only for myself, but it's just a personal obsession of like, partially I guess because of the fact that I've had to churn out things consistently and not had the time to really rethink what material means or or something like that, that I've had to obsess and happily obsess about how to create some sort of form or process that, that is moving towards like an audible process, something that can be heard, whatever that means that I obsess more and more about these larger formal issues rather than like, how can I create more micro level detail or, or, or some sort of interesting sound that people haven't heard before. It's equally as valid. It's just at this point in my, you know, in my thinking, it's less, I'm less interested in those things. And it seems in the music that I like to listen to in my free time, people who I'm listening to invariably have nothing to do surface wise with what I do or what, people would hear in my music but it seems that they're really thinking about that same thing of like audibility you know perceived form containers that that are put around things that are embracing some sort of internal polemic that allow people to say oh it is about the larger structure it's not about you know a scratch tone or a slow bow or something like that I I think it's I don't know it's just a personal thing of trying to figure out what it is I'm interested in how complex are, do you think you're able to make these structures without losing people? Not very. 
and, and they're not, they're not. I think it depends on what, what it is that you're doing. But for me personally, for, for people to hear or to in some way be able to see how the material is being juxtaposed against itself or varied, I need to make the formal structure quite simple. And so I do that. And happily, I mean, that was a Brian thing. I mean, the first piece I worked on with Brian, I mean, obviously when I was at Wesleyan and I would talk to Alvin about music, mm -hmm. he would say, go for the simple answer. And, you know, it worked for him. But I, you know, at that time that seemed, you know, it just seemed like that would be the answer he would give anybody because of his aesthetics and how strong of an identity he has. But when I went to Stanford, and that's where I took my first formal lessons where I'd like put a piece of paper down with notes on it and had to talk through compositions. I was working on this piece and about a third of the way through the piece when I was going into this iteration process, I had this idea of how I was going to do a certain like changing of the tuning in the violin from iteration to iteration against just leaving it the same. Something oh, you mean during the piece? During the piece, but during silent, during sort of fermatas in the iteration stops. And I remember saying, well, I could do that or I could just leave it the same as it is. And I remember Brian saying to me, just do the simple thing. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, you know, like you're the only, I know it's not as fun for you, but you're the only one that's going to know it's the simpler thing. Just, it'll be clearer that way. And that was like a big, you know, so I'd been there like a month or something like that. And so to hear the same advice from these two people who I obviously have immense respect for, but are totally different. One would assume that he wouldn't say that. I assumed he was going to say, Andrew, do that microtonal score to Torah between each one, because that's going to be doing what, you know, it'll, it'll echo formally what you're trying to do. And he was just like, no, don't do that. That causes way too many issues. The pragmatism isn't there. And, and really, you're, people aren't going to hear it the way that you're perceiving it. Just make invariably make the simple decision when it comes down to that. The simpler is better. And that was huge. That was like a huge thing to hear. Because then it was, okay, well, you know, invariably, usually the simpler, clearer decision will probably aid in whatever it is that I'm trying to get to. And at that point, I didn't know I was trying to get to audibility, like larger scale audibility for people to see how the piece was unfolding. So that's the whole thing, creating forms and creating algorithms that are easy to hear, not harder to hear. And if that means it's less sort of ideal to talk about when I have to write a paper on it or I have to explain it in a class. I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm happy that I can put it out very clearly. That's, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a great place to leave it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks you for doing this. No, no, my pleasure. Yeah.